Good morning, everyone. Let's just take a moment to thank the worship band. They were just awesome this morning. So so grateful for their ministry. Well, this morning uh, we are going to talk about uh, On the Road to the Cross. And so we're going to talk about some of the events leading up to uh, and including Jesus' crucifixion. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Lord God, as we embark on Holy Week, we just pray that, that we would contemplate these things that we're going to talk about today and that we would be changed by them, Lord, that we would appreciate your sacrifice even more and that we would love you more because of the things that you did for us. Lord, we just thank you for your enormous, incredible, unfathomable sacrifice that you made for us that leads to eternal life. And we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Saving Private Ryan is considered to be one of the greatest war movies ever made. Uh, It's a little too intense for me, I got to tell you. (laughs) It it was rough, but it was very, very uh, impactful. And there's an unforgettable scene at the beginning of the movie uh, where the Allied soldiers are invading Normandy, France. And this is D-Day, June 6th, 1944. And the Allies, of course, are coming by boat, uh, and they're, they're going to land on the beach there at Normandy. Uh, and the plan was to secure Normandy, and then if they could do that, then they would march on from Normandy uh, to Paris to free it from German occupation. And as uh, the boats come closer and closer to the water, uh, you literally see uh, hundreds, thousands of, of young men in these boats uh, literally quaking in their boots uh, as, as they're anticipating the battle uh, that's about to come. And what follows is one of the most gory scenes that I've ever seen uh, in the movies, as as you see these uh, soldiers being shot uh, in the water. And then those who make it to the beach are are being shot on the beach. And and those who are still alive are kind of wandering around in circles, dazed uh, and in shock as to what's going on. And uh, it's just an incredibly intense scene. And as wave after wave of Allied soldiers uh, hit the beach, uh, as the day draws on, uh, they are able to uh, actually drive the Germans back uh, some. And finally, they were able to to hold that beach. Uh, And that was their goal. And the goal was Paris, of course, but they had to go through Normandy uh, to get to Paris. And, And their courage was required to achieve that goal. And their success there was the turning point of the war. Well, Jesus had a goal too, and his goal was the salvation of mankind. And to save mankind, he had to go through some difficult things, and that's what he went through uh, this week. He had to go to the cross to suffer and die for the forgiveness of sins. And you know that Jesus stayed outside of Jerusalem uh, for quite a while uh, until his hour had come. Uh, He knew that he had to die in Jerusalem, and he knew that he had to die at Passover. And so as Passover approached, Jesus drew nearer and nearer uh, to Jerusalem. And so rather than turn away from Jerusalem, he marched to Jerusalem and he marched toward the cross. We're going to look at the week leading up to uh, the cross uh, today. Um, We're going to piece together some information from the different gospels. And and we're going to see today that Jesus's love for us uh, and his sovereignty made the events of our salvation possible. He went to the cross because of his great love for us. 
So as we begin, uh, at, at where we're going to start, Jesus is he's outside of Jerusalem, and he's on the way to the cross. And so we're going to look beginning in uh, Mark chapter 10 at verses 32 through 34. Uh, this is Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, so they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Well, this is the third time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has predicted his death, and each time uh, with increasingly uh, greater detail. And he knew it was coming, obviously, because Jesus is sovereign over all events, but he's also sovereign over the timing of these events. And, and that's why everything was going to happen on his schedule. Uh, we know that the Pharisees had tried to seize Jesus before, but because his hour had not yet come, he had eluded their grasp and slipped away from him. Uh, but now that his hour had come, he orchestrated what was going to happen. He orchestrated when it was going to happen because he is sovereign. But we also need to see his love here. Jesus walked toward certain death because of his great love for us. Jesus knew that the only way to save mankind was to go to Jerusalem. Uh, to save mankind from the punishment that was due, he had to take the punishment for our sins on himself. And, and only by going through the crucible of death and being raised from the dead could he prove that he has power over death. You know, he could have changed course at any moment, right? He's on the way to Jerusalem. Didn't have to go. Uh, he could have decided that we, the people he came to save, uh, were not worth it. He could have decided to forsake us, but he didn't. He marched on. He marched on on the road to Jerusalem. And those who followed him were fearful, and they were amazed because they knew what awaited them in Jerusalem. There was certainly the potential that they could be killed there uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, they had escaped Jerusalem earlier for fear that, that they might be killed, and here they are going back again. And, and here's their leader, like the soldiers who stormed the beach at Normandy, walking ahead of them walking on toward Jerusalem while they're behind him, fearful and amazed. Well, on the way, he's going to pass a couple of cities. He's going to pass Jericho to start. And along the way, we see that Jesus made disciples. He, he loved individual people. He was never too busy for individual people. So uh, he passed Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. And so I just want you to see this little map here. Uh, he's coming from out there in the east. And he's following this yellow line, and he's going to get to Jericho, and that's where he is now on the march to Jerusalem. Bartimaeus followed him after he healed him, right? Bartimaeus was blind. Jesus encounters him, uh, and Jesus heals him in Luke 18, uh, 35 to 43. And then continuing through Jericho, he stumbles upon Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a, a short man. He's hiding in a tree. He's a tax collector. And um, Jesus says, uh, come down, Zacchaeus. I, I need to stay with you tonight. Jesus gave this man forgiveness. Zacchaeus said, uh, because of, of what I have heard from you, because of who you are, I will pay back the people that I have cheated up to four times the amount that I have cheated them. And Jesus said, uh, salvation 
has come to this house. So Jesus is making disciples. He's making converts all along the way. And he comes on then to Bethany and Bethpage. Probably he got to Bethany and Bethpage on Friday, uh, landed there on Friday night, rested there on the Sabbath the next day, and then the Sunday would have been the day that we would call the triumphal entry. Uh, And so as they come uh, to Bethany and Bethpage, he's going to proceed towards Jerusalem. And so we're going to read the triumphal entry account from Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 19, and that's verses 28 uh, through 40. This is called the triumphal entry. Uh, After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were, went, who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. It's interesting to me that this event has always been called the triumphal entry. Uh, Most of this passage actually happens before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And in fact, most of the passage happens before he even reaches the top of the Mount of Olives. So I kind of liken this more to uh, a triumphal approach more than a triumphal entry because he doesn't quite enter Jerusalem uh, for quite a bit still. Uh, So let me show you this aerial photo and this will help a little bit. Uh, Bethany is out to the east here of uh, the Mount of Olives. And then on the other side of the Mount of Olives is, it's called the Dome of the Rock, obviously that wasn't there at the time. The temple was there and that's Jerusalem over there. So they had to climb from Bethany over the Mount of Olives and then into Jerusalem. And so Bethany and Bethpage were these two separate villages. Bethany is still there, uh, but Bethpage is gone. Uh, And between Bethany and uh, Bethpage and Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. Uh, And so this is what the Mount of Olives looks like. And so Bethany and Bethpage would be out here, and then they would climb over the Mount of Olives, and then they would enter into Jerusalem, which you can see the Dome of the Rock there in the the distance. And this is the Kidron Valley uh, in between. And so that's the route that they're taking. And so from Bethany and Bethpage, uh, you would have a pretty steep ascent over to the Mount of Olives. And then uh, once you reach the peak of the Mount of Olives, then the whole uh, city of Jerusalem is uh, visible to you. And so this is what it would look like, of course, without the Dome of the Rock. The temple would have been there at the time. But you would look down over Jerusalem, and you could see it all from there. Uh, and you'd have to cross the, the Kidron Valley to get into Jerusalem, which you can't see from the photo. But it's a pretty steep descent and then ascent again back into uh, Jerusalem. So anyway, Jesus and his company are approaching Bethpage and they're approaching Bethany. And he tells his disciples, go ahead of me uh, and and you're going to find this cult there. And if anybody asks you why you're taking it, you say the Lord has need of it. 
you know, when, when, when Jesus called himself the Lord, uh, that's a claim, right? Uh, that is a statement saying, I am the Messiah. And you will find things exactly as I, as I am telling you that you will find them. So he's showing his omniscience and he's showing his sovereignty and lordship. He's claiming to be the Messiah and asserting his authority as the Messiah. And when the cult was brought to him, they threw their, cult, their coats on the cult and then Jesus gets on and begins to ride. Now, before we continue on this, I want to address uh, Matthew's account. Uh, Matthew's account is rather confusing, and so I want to read uh, Matthew verses 21, uh, chapter 21, verses 2 to 7, and then just talk about that briefly. Matthew says, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 now. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed him or them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on them. Matthew's account is the only account that actually mentions two separate donkeys, and the grammar is kind of awkward. It sounds like Jesus is like straddling these two donkeys and riding them both at the same time. Uh, and the explanation for this is, is that uh, there probably were two cults, because Matthew says that there were, and, and it would be natural for a cult that had never been ridden before to have its mother accompany it. And so that's why the mother comes. And, and he sit, sits on them. The them refers to the coats, not to the cults, not to both cults. So I'm going to have to take you back to grammar school. And I apologize for that, but we're going back to grammar school for a second. And you may remember from grammar school uh, that an antecedent modifies its nearest pronoun. And an antecedent is a noun that, that uh, is going to be replaced later in the sentence by a pronoun. You all with me? Come on. You all with me? All right, grammar school, back to seventh grade. So what we have here is them is the nearest antecedent, uh, the pronoun modifying the antecedent coats, not the antecedent, the donkey and the colt. So he's riding on the donkey, which is covered in colts, uh, coats. He's not riding on two colts. So I hope that's clear to you. I hope that that clears up some confusion. If I could say colt and coat and get those right, you'd probably understand it better. But he's sitting on a colt covered by coats, and then he's going to ride into Jerusalem. And the mother colt was also there. Well, why the donkey? Why would you pick a donkey when you could pick like a war steed, right, to, to ride into Jerusalem? Well, First, it was to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Jesus intentionally did that. This was no accident. He knew what the prophecy said. And so he's asserting his messiahship. He's asserting his authority. He's asserting who he is by purposely fulfilling this prophecy. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And they knew it by how he rode into Jerusalem. And second, the donkey is a peaceful animal, uh, and that represents Jesus's peaceful kingdom. And that's why he does it. That's why he rides the donkey into Jerusalem. And so his entourage proceeds from Bethany and Bethpage uh, up the Mount of Olives. And, and as he approaches and, and rides up the Mount of Olives, of course, he's riding closer and closer to his death. 
And that's because of his great love for us. Again, he could have turned to the right or to the left at any time, but he continues that march on to Jerusalem. And I want you to remember that this is Passover week. And so uh, Jerusalem would be filled with people at this time. There would be hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people there, because they had to come to Jerusalem uh, for Passover. And people would have been camping in tents uh, all along the way, uh, because obviously Jerusalem isn't big enough to hold them all. They're, they're camping all along the route. And so it would be like Woodstock without the LSD. And so that's what Jesus would have encountered. And he's walking all along the way. And, and John says the large crowd of Jews from Jerusalem learned that he was coming. And so they come out to meet him. Uh, and, and they came not only to see Jesus, but because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so they want to see that because everyone knew that, that Lazarus had died. And they want to see living Lazarus now. So people are following him on the road to Jerusalem. People are coming out from Jerusalem to see him. And as Jesus proceeded, the followers are laying their coats in front of the donkey. And as the donkey passes, uh, the coats are brought up from the back to the front again so that Jesus could continue to cross on these coats. It's like, uh, it's like uh, Jerusalem's version of the Hollywood red carpet, right? He's getting the red carpet treatment as he's being delivered and ushered into uh, Jerusalem. Well, John notes that these folks were waving palm branches like we did this morning. Well, well, why? What's the palm branches all about? Um, we call today Palm Sunday because they were waving palm branches, and they were waving palm branches because palm branches are a symbol of freedom and a symbol of defiance. Uh, 150 years earlier, uh, the uh, Syrians had desecrated the temple. They, they conquered Jerusalem. They desecrated the temple. They sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple, the worst thing you could ever do uh, in a Jewish temple, uh, to, to sacrifice an unclean animal on their altar. Well, Simon Maccabeus rose up and he conquered uh, the Syrians and drove them out. And then he came riding back into Jerusalem, waving a palm branch. And so that is where the symbolism comes from. It's the symbol of victory. It's the symbol of freedom. It's the symbol of defiance. It's the symbol of recognizing your king. So do you see the symbolism here now? As Jesus is riding in, these folks are laying their coats, they're calling him king, and they're waving palm branches because they are recognizing him as their king. And they're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, uh, when you read the other accounts, uh, Mark and Matthew and John, it says, Hosanna, which means save now. They're telling their king, save now, or, uh, free us from the oppression of Rome. And Matthew even has Hosanna to the son of David, which is clearly a messianic title. And they, they clearly understood the symbolism of the donkey and that Jesus was presenting himself to them as their Messiah. You know, Jesus had always refused to accept this kind of praise, and he always refused when they wanted to make him king. That's when he slipped away from them. But now he's accepting their praise because he needs to force the Jewish authorities' hands. He's on a timetable, and he's going to make them conform to his timetable. He's going to force them to act. And, and the Pharisees tell, these, uh, tell Jesus, silence this crowd, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, if I rebuke them, even the stones will cry out. Such is the majesty of Jesus. And, and Jesus was claiming to be God. He was not claiming to be a good person. He was not claiming to be a prophet. This is a claim to being God. And the Pharisees, of course, didn't miss it. They knew what he was saying, and they could not tolerate it any longer. And so they begin to make plans uh, 
put plans into motion that will result in his crucifixion. Uh, and while the crowds were rejoicing that their Savior had arrived, Jesus himself is weeping. Isn't that ironic, right? Let's see why. We'll read verses 9, uh, 41 and four, through 44 of Luke 19. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children with you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So from the peak of the Mount of Olives, Jesus would have been looking down into the city and seeing these throngs of people gathered for Passover, and looking at all these people, he grieved the fact that he knew that they were going to reject him and crucify him, and then that God would use the Romans to judge them. You know that in 66 AD, uh, the Jews did rebel against Rome, and for a period of time, uh, they were able to hold on to Jerusalem free from Roman control. But the Romans didn't like that very much, and they sent uh, the Roman general Titus who surrounded the city, laid siege to the city, entered the city, and then burned the temple and tore the temple down, one stone upon another, just as Jesus had predicted. And that's why Jesus was weeping. He knew what was coming, and he grieved for these people, and he wept for these people. He felt compassion for these people because he loved these people. The Jewish historian Josephus says up to a million Jews were killed uh, during that uh, siege by General Titus. And so uh, Jesus foresaw those days and he grieved them very deeply. Well, he's still outside the city, but because of his love, uh, he triumphantly, triumphantly uh, marched toward the city. And, and outside the city, he was joyfully and triumphantly accepted. But when he entered the city, he was utterly rejected. So now let's talk about his entry. Uh, from Matthew chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. Uh, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The word for stirred or stirred up means agitated or, or thrown into a state of commotion. Jesus is here. He's a polarizing figure. Some love him and some say, Well, he must die. Uh, and so the whole city is stirred up. And it's amazing that the crowds who supported him, who are shouting Hosanna and, and blessed is the king on, uh, on this day, just a few days later, are shouting crucify him and we have no king but Caesar. Uh, in just a few days, that was, that was able to happen. And Jesus did not come to defeat Rome. He came to defeat sin, death, and Satan. And so he was a different kind of Messiah than they were expecting. And when he turned out not to be the kind of Messiah that they were expecting, they turned on him. They turned on him and they utterly rejected him. And in John, it says that, that uh, the whole world has gone out to him. And yet in just a few days later, they're yelling crucify. Between Sunday and Thursday, these Jewish leaders plotted as to how they were going to kill him. And Judas decided that he would betray him, all just as God had planned. They're responsible for their decisions, but God used their decisions to accomplish their purpose. And by Thursday night, the night of the Last Supper, God's sovereign plan was completely in place 
uh, for everything to happen just as had been planned since the foundation of the world. Jesus left the Last Supper uh, to go and betray Jesus. And, and Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and this is what it looks like. Uh, that is the view from Jerusalem. And that little garden next to the church, that's the Garden of Gethsemane. That's all it is. And this is a close-up view of it. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where Jesus would go with his friends and they would pray uh, from time to time. And, and while Judas was betraying him, uh, Jesus and the disciples are there in the garden praying that there might be another way for him or for mankind to be saved. In Jesus's humanity, he did not want to go to the cross. He did not want to face the cross. And he wanted there to be some other way for mankind to be saved. Uh, this was the greatest spiritual battle ever fought. As Jesus, sweating drops of blood in the garden, agonizes, praying to his father uh, that, there, that this cup might pass from him. And yet at the end, he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. What an incredible, incredible act of love uh, that Jesus did. Every fiber of his humanity not wanting to face the cross. He knew he could escape. There was still time. Judas and the soldiers weren't there yet, but because of his love for us, he stayed in that garden and he waited and he was arrested there. And then there was the illegal trial. After the soldiers arrested him, the Sanhedrin assembled for this quick and most illegal trial. There was no formal charge against him of any crime. The trials were required to happen during the day, but Jesus' trial was secret and it was at night. Trials had to happen in the temple courts, but they had a, a trial at Caiaphas' house. Witnesses were supposed to be questioned independently to see if their testimony agreed, but they did not do that. They were all standing together and offering their own testimony and trying to see if they could find any two guys whose testimony agreed. The courts were not allowed to meet during the feasts, and yet here they are, meeting during Passover. Each member of the Sanhedrin was supposed to give a verdict separately, and yet they're all shouting, what do you think? Is he worthy of death? Yes, they're all cheering, he's worthy of death. If the verdict was death, a full night was supposed to pass so that the court could have time to reconsider. You don't want to enter into such a harsh sentence uh, on, a, on, a, on a whim of passion. You want to have time to reconsider that. But they didn't do that. False witnesses were brought. All of them, none of their testimony agreed, and Jesus was even forced to incriminate himself which he voluntarily did when it was plain that they were not going to be able to convict him themselves. What an incredible act of love. In our legal system, the confessions of a defendant made under duress or under threats or coercion are not admissible in court, right? They get thrown out. Um, a confession is only admissible if made voluntarily and not under any kind of pressure or coercion. So this trial was illegal, and the confession he made would not have been admissible in any court, but this wasn't a real court. This was a kangaroo court. This was a lynch mob, right? They were out to get him, and they didn't care uh, what laws they violated to do it. But the amazing thing is, is that even though uh, they couldn't get him, uh, Jesus wanted to be convicted because it was the only way that he could go to the cross. Is that incredible? That they couldn't get him, and, and yet Jesus, he's like, Guys, you're helpless. You can't even convict me. And so I have to do that for you too. It's amazing. And the way he does it ensures that there is no doubt about what the outcome of this is going to be uh, because he quotes Daniel chapter 7. He says, I am the Christ, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming 
with the clouds of heaven. Well, if you want to get yourself sent to the cross, that's a pretty good way to do it because that is the messianic prophecy, the messianic prophecy from the Old Testament, from Daniel 7. And these guys knew it, and they knew they had him, and they said, what do you think? Is he, is he blaspheming? Is he worthy of death? And they all jump up and cheer. Yes, he's worthy of death. Uh, what, you've heard it with your own ears. They understood that he was claiming divinity. They had him on blasphemy charges and Jesus' own testimony, uh, given in, in obedience to the Father's plan, is what sealed his fate. Why would Jesus do this? Well, again, it's because of his love and it's because of his sovereignty. First, his love. Man's problem is sin, right? Man has a problem and it's a sin problem. He sinned against God and because God is just and holy, he has to punish sin. And we deserve that punishment for our sin. We deserve to be punished for the sin that we've committed. God cannot allow us into his presence because we are sinful. And if he did that, that would violate his holiness and that would contaminate heaven itself. But God is also a God of love and he loves us so much that he sent his only son that he would die in our place uh, to accept the punishment willingly that we deserve so that instead of us having to take the punishment, Jesus takes the punishment himself. And, and he takes our punishment as if he committed every sin that you and I have ever committed. And in exchange, we get his righteousness as if we had never committed any sin, that we had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. Uh, if there is a better deal than that on this earth, I want to know what it is. That is an unbelievable deal, what Jesus has offered us. And all we need to do is to believe we see his righteousness and we see his love, but we also see his sovereignty. These events of Holy Week came together just as Jesus planned. Uh, everybody was where they were supposed to be uh, because God's in complete control of his creation, right? You have uh, the, the, the crowds are there in Jerusalem only because it's the Passover. And Pilate would only be in Jerusalem because it's the Passover. He wasn't there all the time. He was only there to maintain order at the time of Jewish feasts. And Jesus' encounters with the, divine, or with, the, uh, with the Jewish authorities that week were divinely orchestrated. And Judas's, uh, Judas was allowed uh, to have Satan enter him by God's decree so that Judas would go out and betray him. So you have God putting all these pieces in place and moving everybody into the same place at the right time so that Jesus would be crucified at the Passover feast. Why is that important? Why is it important that Jesus be crucified at Passover? Well, it's because Passover was the foreshadowing of the final Passover lamb, who is Jesus himself. You know that Passover was instituted by God to commemorate the, uh, the Exodus, uh, the, the Jews leaving Egypt uh, at the time when uh, Pharaoh was in control over them. And, and what Passover was, was uh, God was sending a death plague to slay the firstborn of Egypt. And then Pharaoh would surely let them go. And the Israelites had to slaughter a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish, and paint their doorposts with that lamb's blood. And then the, the angel of death would pass over their own firstborn. And so the lamb was slain as a substitute for their firstborn child. The Passover lamb had to be slain before Friday at sundown. And the death of that lamb was sacrificial and substitutional for the sins of the people. And Passover was to be observed every year until the Messiah came. And then Jesus comes and, and as the final 
Passover lamb. Uh, He died a sacrificial, substitutional, and atoning death Friday before sundown, just like the Passover lamb. And and like the Passover lamb's blood applied to the doorposts caused the angel of death to pass over their firstborn. So Christ's blood causes judgment to pass over those who believe in him, and that's us. When Jesus hung on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. And that's why the cross is a triumph. Because of the cross, uh, Jesus defeated death, sin, and, and Satan and gave to humanity eternal life to those who will believe in him. Earlier I mentioned the movie Saving Private Ryan. And, and the plot of the movie is that there were four boys uh, in the Ryan family And three of the boys had already been killed in this war. And the army didn't want uh, the last boy, Private Ryan, uh, to be killed. They wanted him to be returned to his mother. And so the army commissions uh, Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, uh, and his company to go and and to go find this Private Ryan and bring him home uh, before he's killed. We, We don't want all four of Mrs. Ryan's sons to die. And during the, during the rescue scene, they find Private Ryan, they, they rescue him, and they're trying to get their, fight their way out. Uh, but Captain Miller is shot, and he's dying. And as he's sitting on the ground dying, he pulls Private Ryan close to him, and he says, earn this. Earn this. It's so intense. And then as, as uh, Private Ryan is staring down at the dying and now dead Captain Miller, the scene morphs into uh, a much older Uh, Private Ryan, now standing over Captain Miller's grave at Arlington National Cemetery. And he says to him, every day I have thought about what you said to me on that bridge that day. I have tried to live a good life. I have tried to make you proud. I pray that it was enough. I hope that I have done enough to earn what you and your men did for me that day. Captain Miller's death was a sacrificial death, uh, but it was not atoning, and it was not substitutional, and it had no grace in it because Captain Miller required Private Ryan to earn that gift every day. Can you imagine having to live under that kind of pressure to live the rest of your life? You're 18, 19 years old, and, and at the grave, he's maybe 70 years old, and he's every day of his life trying to earn that gift it's a pretty impossible task. It's a pretty incredible burden on your life. Well, Jesus' death was sacrificial, but he did not burden us with anything other than the charge to believe in him. We don't have to earn anything. He died because we can't earn anything. Salvation is a free gift that Jesus gives to us when we believe in him. There's nothing to earn. You can't earn Jesus' love by being a good person, by doing good deeds. Uh, He cannot love you any more than he already does, and he proved that by going to the cross for you. All he wants is for you to turn from your sin and to turn to him and accept the gift of salvation that he has bought for you with his own blood. And that's grace. So, this Passion Week, we ought to be thinking about the Savior's march to the cross with great joy because by it he purchased our salvation But we also should remember what it cost. The cost was exponentially infinite, beyond infinite, right? You can't cost cost more or charge more than the the death of the Son of God. Uh, That's as expensive as anything could get. So we should remember it with great sorrow because it's our sin 
that put him there. So some applications. Because of Jesus' love, he went to the cross for you. So spend some time each day this week thinking about that, thinking about how Jesus at any time could have turned from the right or to the left and have forsaken you, or how he could have called down a legion of angels to rescue him in the garden, uh, but he didn't do that. He could have defeated his enemies in any other way, uh, but instead he went to the cross to defeat bigger enemies than the people who wanted to kill him. He went there to defeat sin, death, and Satan so that you and I could have eternal life. Defeating the Romans would have given us none of that. He had to go to the cross. These allied soldiers had to go through uh, Normandy to get to Paris. Jesus had to go to the cross to save our souls. So think about the love of God that is so immense that he would hang on a cross and die for you. Second, because of his love for us, he died for all of our sins. You may have done some terrible things in your life. You may even be doing some terrible things in your life right now, and you may think that God can't forgive those sins. And if you think that, you're wrong. Jesus died to forgive all of your sins. How many of your sins did you commit uh, when Christ died? You hadn't committed any of them yet, right? So all of your sins have been forgiven after he died, and so the future sins that you commit will continue to be forgiven by God because he, he died to, to uh, forgive all of your sins. Every sin that you will ever commit in your life, he's already died to pay for that. He didn't die to pay for some of your sins. He died to pay for them all. So uh, if there's anyone here thinking that they can't be forgiven because... Uh, the things that you've done are so terrible. I pray that you wouldn't think that. Jesus died to forgive you for all of your sin, and you can't outsin God's love, and you can't outsin God's grace. He's much bigger than the worst thing that you've ever done. You're forgiven. God is satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. Third, he's in control of your circumstances. Don't miss Jesus because of wrong expectations. These Jews were thinking of a different kind of Messiah, and they completely missed Jesus because he did not match what they were expecting. When he turned out not to be a military Messiah, they rejected him completely. And, and you and I, sometimes we might think that the world is against us. The world is conspiring against us. Things are going bad at work. They're going bad in our homes. Uh, our health is not so good. Our finances are not so good. And, and maybe God has forgotten us. Maybe God has forsaken us. But God is working. He sees the big picture. He sees way more than we can possibly ever see, and he has a plan. He knows what you're going through. He died for you. Can he not handle your circumstances, whatever they are? Of course he can. Just wait on him. Don't reject him like the Pharisees did. Just wait on him. And finally, be grateful. Jesus' death on the cross was the greatest act of love in the history of the world. And by it, we are saved. And so let's go to him and thank him for it now. Let's pray. Lord God, the, the cross is an astounding, astonishing act of love. And it's incredible that you did that for us, Lord. Lord, help us this week to understand the gravity of what you did to understand why it was necessary, to help us to turn from our sin, Lord. Help us to love you more. Lord, you are a great, amazing, loving, compassionate God, a God of grace. God, you are so amazing. Lord, who are we that we would deserve such lavished love upon us? 
We are so grateful for what you've done, Lord. And Lord, as we think about the events leading up to the cross, so many things happened. Uh, Lord, we were not able to touch nearly all of them today, but there is so much there, Lord, and I pray that we would spend time pondering these things this week as we think about the road to the cross. In Jesus' name I pray it, Lord. Amen.